1: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is truly fall, although the weather here in Massachusetts would make you believe that it might even be kind of the end of summer, Um, but I know it's really fall because life here at College Coach is kind of crazy, and November 1 is almost here, which is very exciting on one level and also just means that this next week... Uh, is going to be crazier than usual. Um, We are going to be tackling your questions uh, in our next couple of segments. But before we get to that, we wanted to do another one in our standing out series. We've been talking lately um, in, in our shows about this big picture question of how do I or how do I help my student stand out in the application process? And it's a question we get a lot. There are no easy answers because there are so many different ways in which a student could potentially stand out, uh, and that's why we're breaking it down. So, this week, I'm very excited to welcome my colleague and former Babson Admissions Officer, Christine Kenyon, to talk with us about how you can stand out in terms of your choice of where to apply. Uh, so, welcome, Christine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Really excited to have you here today. So, as I was just mentioning, this is a question we've been tackling bit by bit in, uh, in, a, in a number of different segments on the show, this idea of how do you stand out? And so um, you and I today are going to tackle the question of how where you apply can actually help you stand out. And I guess um, my first question to you is kind of what's one area that comes to mind immediately when you think about a way in which a student could stand out in their choice of where to
2: apply? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think of myself personally, and I think of geography. So I was born and raised in South Florida. Um, I had never seen snow or fall or basically any other season besides summer um, mm-hmm. when I was applying to college. And I knew that I wanted that to be part of my, my college experience. So I kind of only focused on applying to schools um, in the New England corridor because I wanted to see those, those couple of seasons. So I um, you know, I, uh, geography. I think is one way that students can definitely stand out. And mm-hmm. you know, I saw it sort of work in in my favor as as an undergrad, and I did end up going to college up in Massachusetts. Um, but when I was working as an admission counselor at Babson, I also saw that geography could play an interesting role. In that, um, you know, we were always trying to bring in a class of students who were representative of um, the whole U.S. Yep. Absolutely, right? You don't want just those kids
1: who are local, um, which is exactly how you saw it play out for you. Of course, mm-hmm. I suppose the potential downside is that you wind up making your life here in Massachusetts, which you must have liked <laughs> the fall, or you wouldn't have. Um, and I saw I it certainly, you know, I think for those listeners of ours who are international, I think. Um, just wanting to apply to colleges here in the US. But one of the big mistakes that I see the students that I work with make and that I bet you would see as well, Christine, and I certainly see a lot of international students doing is focusing on the coasts because (laughs) that tends to be sort of, oh, I know what that is. And there's this whole big section in the middle of the country with amazing colleges and yet students, if they are gonna look there, tend to focus on the same exact ones. Um, Whereas if you broadened your perspective a little bit on both the United States and on what uh, some good colleges could be, I think geographically you could present this incredibly interesting profile to many colleges that are out there um, from that perspective. What are, um, yeah. you know, what are some other things that, that you think about when you think about standing
2: out in terms of where you apply? Well, I think it kind of piggybacks on what you were just discussing. Like I, I I so agree with what you said about not just targeting the coast and then going beyond the scope of the names of the schools that you've seen students from your high school enroll at, Um, you know, wherever you go to high school, internationally, domestically, whatever state you go to, there's going to be a cohort of, of colleges that are familiar in name and that every year, a couple of students from your high school go to, um, that, that's great because it means that they are taking a chunk of students from your high school and perhaps your, your best school is and your best fit college is one of those. And that could work in your favor, but I think it can really be a good thing to think beyond those handful of schools that you're most familiar with. So, you know, just like you want to look outside of the geography that you're thinking about in terms of go beyond the coast or go beyond just, you know, what's within a three-hour driving distance to your home, go beyond the names of schools that, that, students from your high school um, are applying to. You know There are so many wonderful institutions out there in the U.S., and I think it's a shame that depending on the high school you go to, you you could probably ask any student and they could maybe name like 10 different colleges that they're like, oh, well, that's where kids go to college. And there are over 3,000 colleges and universities. So I think if you kind of think broader than that um, and kind of go beyond the name brand, uh, including selectivity of school, that can really open a whole host of institutions that could potentially be a really good fit and that could allow you to stand out as an applicant.
1: Right, because what happens when you apply to the same schools that all your friends are applying to or that students always apply to from your school is that you get lumped in with everyone else. And the Mm -hmm. whole point of this series is, how do I stand out instead of blending in? And um, you're almost guaranteed to blend in at least a little bit when you're applying to the same schools as everybody else uh, from your school. And in fact, when I was applying to college way back in the day, and I realized it's so long ago that... That it does. It's almost a totally different time to have been applying to college, but I was the only person who'd applied to the school I ended up attending in a couple of years, and it, we did not have a big history of sending students to that school. And I do think that that was something that worked in my favor. That that um, you know, I attended a school that was an interesting option within the state I attended high school. And I'm guessing that the school I attended was interested in getting more applications from my school. And so it may have opened up a door for me that, you know, might not have been there at a different school where lots of my friends were
2: applying. So I have personal experience with that. Yeah. And I think, I think that, uh, you shouldn't worry because I don't want people to think like, oh my goodness, we should have moved to North Dakota when I got that job Uh offering there. Like I wish we lived in Alaska. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. Like you know, I'm thinking more of for a student from New Jersey. Um, New Jersey has some great public high schools there where students go on to some really fantastic colleges and universities. And you're a stone throw away from colleges in Pennsylvania, from colleges in Connecticut and Massachusetts, oh, in New York. Um, so it doesn't mean that if you're a student in New Jersey that, you know, you need to only look at colleges in Hawaii or Alaska. But even going beyond that sort of mid-Atlantic um, kind of bubble would Mm -hmm. help your application to stand out a little bit. Look at Tennessee, look at Georgia, um, look at Ohio, look a little bit westward, look in Illinois. Um, I I think it's just sort of taking a step back and looking at the schools that you've heard of and and where students are applying to. And then if you're comfortable, widening that radius just a little bit to say, all right, you know, maybe my application could look a little bit more interesting, um, you know, if I apply to a, a college in Kentucky. Right. And, and okay, well, I'm, con- I, I'm willing to go outside
1: of my comfort zone. I'll apply to University of Michigan. Okay, well, <laughs> University of Michigan is super selective, and I don't think you're going to get any bonus points for applying from- to there from New Jersey, but how about this? What is it about University of Michigan that's interesting to you? Now go find some other schools with similar attributes that are a little less popular within your high school and consider those, right? So maybe it's you like University of Michigan, so why don't you also consider Ohio State? Um, Mm -hmm. Why don't you also look at, right, some additional bigger state schools in cool college towns like the University of Georgia, places like that. Um, And by the way, Georgia's going to have better weather than Michigan if that's something that you care (laughs) about. Out. So, um, <laughs> all right. So, so let's say we're leaving geography um, aside for the minute and, and maybe you're someone for whom going far from home is really not an option. And in fact, the goal is really to stay closer to home um, for any number of reasons, which I can absolutely appreciate. Um, There are some other things that you can do um, in terms of thinking a little bit differently. Um, You know, one thing you and I have talked about is being a big fish in a small pond. And and can you talk us through a little bit about our thought process there and what that's about? Sure. So
2: I think it it comes down to, how a student feels as though they're going to be motivated and challenged to um, be their best self in college. So, they are going to take advantage of the resources on their campus. They are going to seek out their professors, ask questions, take advantage of the career services office, um, get involved on campus. So, each student, you you know how you learn best. You know the type of environment that motivates you. And for some students, they're motivated by being surrounded by um, students who are exactly like them and who are are pushing them um, to be their best self or even students who are even smarter or more talented or um, you know more something that mm-hmm. you know is pushing this student outside of their comfort zone um, you, the students around you if they raise the bar does that help you to achieve your goal or are you the type of student that um, you like having a really personalized educational experience. You like being able to have long conversations with your teachers. You like being able to connect on um, a one-on-one basis with administrators. Um, You like knowing the names and faces of people who you interact with. And in that case, you like kind of some of the special preferential treatment that goes along with being a top um, academic at a school. Uh, If that's the case, then, you know, you might be somebody who is more suited towards looking at a smaller population where you could be a little bit of a bigger fish. Um, Neither one is, is wrong or right, but I think that that is something that you can take into consideration when you think of how to make your application stand out, because if you are the type of student who is motivated by being the top and having access to some incredible resources because of it, then you might want to target your college search at some of these uh, institutions that more, are more within your just right or the no problem category of your college list. Right, right, exactly.
1: Like looking at those match schools, looking at those safeties, um, considering if you, are, if you are someone who is reaching for some of the most selective schools in the country, which is great, but as we know, incredibly difficult to stand out. Considering some honors colleges, um, I have a couple of students this year who are competitive applicants for some very selective places who have really, really warmed to some of the honors programs at their state institutions. They've visited and thought, you know, this feels a lot like The environment I will be in if I get into one of those highly selectives, and if I don't, I could be really happy here, or I have had it happen in the past where, um, given the two choices and the difference in price, they're happily accepting the Honors College offer and turning down offers from more expensive private institutions with very, you know, sort of recognizable names, but... Um, they did, they wanted to be bigger fish in a smaller pond and they got more money to be that person. And I also think that can really help you stand out when it's time to apply to graduate school. You know, you might get the lion's share of the resources and attention if you are in a smaller program where you are a big deal versus if you end up at a school where you're, you know, just one of a million people with, who are high flyers, um, So I think, you know, those are some some good ways in which, you know, you could stand out. One other thing that that you had mentioned um, that I thought was a really interesting angle was this idea of kind of applying somewhere where on the surface of it, it may not look like it it makes sense for you to apply. So the example you gave of your friend who you met at Boston College, so can you talk to us a little bit about that kind of idea of applying to a school that on the surface doesn't seem like it would be the right fit?
2: Yeah, so I had a friend um, at BC, which is a Catholic Jesuit institution, uh, who was Jewish, and she was super outgoing, super bubbly and confident, um, very active in her faith, and specifically came to BC because she wanted a different perspective. She had gone almost all her life to a Jewish day school um, for school and had been surrounded by peers who practiced the same faith as her. And for college, she wanted to be pushed out of her comfort zone. She wanted to be surrounded by students who um, were raised with a different faith background, but who would still allow her to practice her faith um, in the manner that she felt comfortable. So she was super involved on in the Campus halal at Boston College, which does exist, even though it's a Catholic institution. Um, she loved her experience. We would have some amazing conversations about philosophy and religion and theology. Um, and she just really enjoyed being there. And I think that, you know, on the surface, if that application came across your desk as an admission counselor, you might say, mm, would this student actually enroll if we admit them. They have the numbers to be here. How do we know? That's where the supplemental essay can become really important where you can say... I know that this background seems a little bit different, but here's why I'm so excited about your school. And I think it can be the same thing if you're an atheist and you're applying to, um, you know, a religiously affiliated school or um, if you're Caucasian and you're applying to a historically black college. If you have found an institution that um, can give you the overall fit for for what you're looking for in your four-year college experience, don't be afraid to submit that application and to speak candidly and honestly in your supplemental about how you know this is the right place for you right I, and I, I think that's great. I think it probably applies to not too
1: many people and I, and and just to underscore what Christine was saying or what you're saying, Christine, as we're talking about this, is it has to be authentic, right? Your friend didn't say, "Uh, I'm Jewish, I go to a Jewish day school, I'm going to apply to Boston College because I think that that I'm going to stand out because not many Jewish kids are going to be applying to Boston College. Um, Lots of Jewish kids applying to Boston College um, and Mm -hmm. to those kind of highly selective Jesuit schools. Um, What probably made her stand out truly was less that she was Jewish and more that she had this vision for why a Jesuit school like Boston College would be a good fit for her and how that was going to add to her educational experience. So, And I think this is a really good note to kind of end on, which is at the end of the day, yes, part of the choice of standing out is a little bit like, okay, am I gonna be a little bit more appealing to this institution than I might be to institution X than I might be to institution Y? But you can't go in solely with that focus. It has to be I want A, B, and C out of my college experience and Any school that lands on your list has to be able to give you those things, because if they don't, then what? I don't understand the point of getting in. If you can't do what you want to do when you get there, if it isn't going to add to your goals, then you've achieved, yay, you got in, but for what, you know, why, right? It's not going to do you any good. Mm -hmm. Um so we have a, just a couple more seconds. Uh, anything else that you wanted to add to, to
2: as people think about standing out in terms of where they apply? I think it's more just about broadening your perspective and realizing that there are so many different institutions out there that could be a good fit for you. Like you were saying, if this college has A, B, and C of what you're looking for in in your overall college experience, um, just be willing to sort of look a little deeper, look a little broader than perhaps you might have just to see what options might be available because you never know if that institution um, could be the perfect fit for you, even though you you thought you didn't want to go to a school in this state or with that you know institutional priority etc right exactly
1: think think broader think more broadly and I think that's a good note to end on Christine thanks so much for joining us today I really appreciate it my pleasure all right next up absolutely next up we're going to be answering your questions so don't go away
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I am excited to welcome my colleague, who I feel I have not spoken with on the air in forever, which is funny because she always seems to be on the show when I'm on the show, uh, Kathy Ruby, who also happens to be a former financial aid officer um, from St. Olaf's. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. It has been a long time, I think, since we've talked. It has. It's been at least been a long time since we've done our um, traditional Q&A here, but we yeah. have two segments and a lot of questions to get to. So I'm just going to jump right in um, with a finance question we received if you're ready.
5: I'm ready. Go for All it. All
1: right. This um, this next question comes from Jay, who is one of our longtime listeners. He's not a first-time caller. Um, he's asked us questions before, and they've been really good, and we have answered them. Uh, and this one, I think, is very uh, particularly prescient for this time of year and the question is many schools state the scholarship awards but leave out the specifics to give themselves wiggle room how much can a parent advocate for their child before becoming annoying do admissions counselors constantly get people begging for help
5: All right, he has asked a good question. And just to clarify, he's talking about merit scholarships here. Um, So he's talking about scholarships that are awarded based on academic profile or other characteristics that your student has, and they're awarded because the college wants to entice your student to enroll. And he's absolutely right that some colleges – We'll tell you, you know, we tell you to go research websites and find out what merit scholarships are offered at different colleges. And many colleges will list <clears throat> the awards that they offer, and they may have three different tiers or, you know, they'll, they'll be somewhat straightforward with what there is. But they won't say who they award them to. Um, and Now, other colleges will. Some colleges have very straightforward formulas where they'll say, if your test score is this and your GPA is this, you can expect to receive this much money. But other colleges don't come right out and say who they give the money to. And the reason is it can change from year to year for a college because colleges are, are literally analyzing their data. Um, it may depend on how many kids they need to enroll that fall, how well they did the year before, how people reacted to the scholarships they awarded the year before. Um, so So some colleges purposely don't tell you who they award to, but there are a few things you can do to make sure you're giving yourself a good shot at getting a merit scholarship from a particular college. Um, The first is to research the website and make sure um, many times – they're awarded just as part of the admission process, but many times there's a separate deadline if you want full consideration for scholarships. So, for example, Boston University says you have to apply by December 1st, even though their regular decision deadline isn't until January 1st or 15th. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be very careful there. Make sure you're meeting deadlines. And then the colleges that are most likely to give you their most generous award are the ones where you are in the top quartile or top 10% of students who are admitted there because no matter what the colleges who are using merit scholarships to recruit students are trying to build their profile and the students they want the most are the ones who are at the top of their pool. Um, So, so you can position yourself well, make sure you have plenty of schools that you know you're going to get into and that you're a rock star for um, so that they'll, they'll give you money. Um, but the next part of his question, how much can a parent advocate for their child before becoming annoying? Um, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. may be able to discuss this a little bit. Um, do admission counselors constantly get people begging for help? Um, so I would say I don't think... Admission counselors get people constantly begging for help, but I think you can be a well-informed consumer, right? So you can mm-hmm. understand where your child sits in the applicant pool um, and advocate that way. So if you know that they're a good catch for that school, um, that helps. The other thing you can think about is in your child's application, you um, making sure to bring out things that you think are worthwhile to that school. So maybe your student's not a good test taker, but they've really taken a challenging course load and done really well. Um, You can kind of point those things out if you're appealing an award um, or if there's a change in test scores or a change, you know, new grades for a new quarter, whatever it might be. So you can always be looking for things to bring to them. um, But, Uh, I would say you can certainly ask once for more money once your student has been awarded a scholarship, and maybe you can ask twice, but I wouldn't ask more than that. Um, I don't think they'll rescind an offer of admission if you become annoying, but on the other hand, you just don't want to be that person.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, and what they might do is say we're done. We're not giving you any. There's a law of diminishing returns, right? So right. Exactly. you can, A, become annoying and B, not get any more money for your efforts. So kind of why bother? So uh, that seems like good advice.
5: And I would also say, don't be advocating until your child is actually accepted. You can be annoying before the child is accepted. So right. wouldn't you and agree? that could cause problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That could cause problems. So you shouldn't be advocating for your child until after they've actually been admitted to an institution. Then after that, you can certainly be an advocate. But what also works is for your student to be an advocate. So yes. there's nothing better than your student explaining why this is their number one choice and why they want to go there. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All Thank right. You. So now you get a question, right? Yes. All right. So Deb is asking, what can I do now as a senior to make a difference on my
1: applications? Uh Aha. So this usually comes from one of two types of kid. One is, (laughs) uh, oh, my gosh, I just need to do everything possible to be as good an applicant as I can be, and I've written and and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and edited and rewritten again this essay, and I think that I'm ready to submit, but have I done everything I can do? What am I missing? Or ha, you know, I've been getting good advice all along and I haven't really done the things I meant to do that I should have done (laughs) that would have made me more competitive. And so what can I do now today that I failed to do in the last two and a half years that will make me more competitive? So, um, you know, here's the answer for those students who are just sort of like, oh my gosh, I need to do everything possible. At a certain point, you do, do have to, you do what the colleges are asking of you and do it as well as you can. And then, you know, you have to sit and wait. That's really literally all you can do at this point. Um, while you're waiting, be, do well in school. Um, the grades that you're earning in your senior year are not going to be part of your calculated GPA, but they are still going to be seen and evaluated at, at most schools. Um And even if they're not going to be part of their uh, decision-making process, they will be seen at the end of everything. So you certainly don't want to be tanking your senior year and get an uh, offer of admission uh, rescinded at the end of it all. That would be the worst thing you could be doing for yourself right now, right? So um, actually, a couple of weeks ago, we did a segment on when do you know you're ready to submit? So for anyone who feels like, oh, she just described to me that student who's writing and rewriting and writing again, um, (laughs) you might want to take a listen to that segment, because I think there's good advice in there about just, you know, letting go and being ready to press that button. Um, It is, as with asking too many times for more money, there's a law of diminishing returns and getting one more opinion about your essay or um, going in and messing with it yet again. You know, you kind of do have to just take a breath and say, okay, I've done the best that I can do. Now I'm going to press submit on this. Um, You can certainly, you want to check, most schools these days have some kind of a portal or a system where you can check if your application has been received. You want to pay attention to what the school tells you about that portal. It may not open until after the deadline, so you may not be able to check to see if anything, everything is there until the deadline has passed because they're still processing everything that's coming in. Um, if you haven't submitted your test scores, but you're ready and your, your applications are in, then certainly you could go ahead and submit those. Uh, if you have applied to some early deadlines, but have some schools that you're applying on the regular deadline schedule, um, you can certainly begin working on your regular decision applications. And I think there's a theme here, right? Right now, all you can really do in your senior year is be good, do as well as you possibly can in school. And, um, you know, give yourself enough time to do a good job on your applications. But everything else is pretty much done at this point. So, you know, a big chunk of this is just kind of sitting tight and uh, don't get in trouble. You know, don't do something dumb that gets you kicked out of school (laughs) or suspended that then you have to tell the colleges about it. Right. Uh, So I guess more of some of it is also what not to do. And so those would be a couple of things there.
5: Well, and I would add, just to reiterate, the do as well as you can because maybe if you do particularly well in a class in the, you know, fall quarter of your senior year, that might help you appeal a merit award in the spring. So wow. do as well as you can in the fall because it might help you bump up an award in the spring because it gives you grounds for uh, an appeal or a negotiation. So, very nice. Good, especially yeah, if it's never, an
1: upward trend. Yes. Never even thought about that. And that actually dovetails nicely with the next question for you, which is, can I still qualify for merit aid if I don't have any financial need? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so
5: that's a pretty straightforward answer. Yes. So merit aid, remember, is is designed to entice students to enroll, and because of that, colleges generally don't look at your financial need when they are uh, awarding merit aid. So ninety. So I'm going to take that to the next level, and the next question is: Do I have to fill out financial aid applications if? Uh, meaning the FAFSA and possibly the CSS profile, if I'm just going to be considered for merit aid? And the answer at most colleges is no. You do not need to fill out the FAFSA or the profile if you just want to be considered for merit aid, but you do want to check the website of each of the colleges you're considering because there are a couple colleges that do encourage you to do the FAFSA um, to be considered for merit aid. So you do want to do your due diligence, but you shouldn't have to you most most of the time you don't have to to apply and you will be okay. fully considered for merit aid. Got it.
1: Good advice.
5: All right, next All one right. for me. All right, the next one, Vicky is asking, my son has gotten a few priority applications from colleges that don't require a fee or an essay. So should he do these?
1: So one thing Vicki doesn't, good question, and one thing Vicki is not mentioning here is whether or not these are colleges that are on her son's list. Um, so what happens with some schools out there is, um, and many of you are seeing, and, and this is kind of a broader question, and issue that we are getting from families who are saying, you know, hey, I got this letter from Stanford. They must really be interested in me. Um, and the unfortunate news here with both the priority applications and the letter from Stanford, or for some uh, from some other programs, is that 99.9% of the time, this is marketing. The colleges have purchased names of students. In some cases, you took the PSAT. Sometimes um, I believe they could have purchased names, potentially, if you took the ACT or the SAT. Um, And they know nothing about this student other than that they met a certain threshold of achievement on one of those tests. Um, And as we all know, you could ace a test and do not very well in school or you could you know you could do okay on a test and it meet a minimum threshold but not necessarily one that would make you competitive um, at the school that's sending you that, that information. So that's the bad news on that front. What, the priority application thing is an interesting one because it certainly makes it feel like they're, they really want you. They're, they're waiving their application fee. They're allowing you to apply without, a, without an essay. And um, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? And in fact, would it be better to apply via that route than to take the, then say to use the Common App, if mm-hmm. it's the school that takes the Common App, right? So, first part of this if these schools are not on your son's list and he's not considering them already, then no, I would not take advantage of this. There is zero reason to apply to a school that you are not interested in. And Just because suddenly they show an interest in you, unless he has a minute to take a look and see and say, oh, you know what, they have some programs that are interesting to me. Maybe this <laughs> is a school that I would like to look a little bit more closely at. And. That's what they're trying to do. But don't submit an application to a school that you have no interest in attending. You know, it doesn't do you any good to collect a bunch of trophies. Um, What you really are doing is potentially taking a spot away from a student who would really love to go to that school. And Mm -hmm. if you can at least put yourself in that student's shoes with a school that you really want to go to, that's not great, right? Um, for a school that's already on your list that you're already planning to apply to, maybe you want to take advantage of a priority application, especially if they're waiving the application fee. But mm-hmm. if if they're allowing you to apply without an essay and you've already written a good essay and it's not a slam dunk for you, meaning that the school is not a safety and it's maybe a math or it could even be a reach, generally speaking, that essay is adding something wrong to your application or adding your voice to your application. And so I usually tell students, sure, you could go ahead and, and do the priority application, but send them your essay anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And if the priority application isn't waiving your application fee, then in most cases, I'll say, why don't you just go with the application you were already going to submit? Um, the schools don't give you bonus points for using that priority application. It's it's meant to to entice you to apply, it's Mm -hmm. not meant to say, oh, if you use this priority application, we'll be more interested in you than if we didn't. So Mm -hmm. that's not the case. So long answer um, about whether or not you should do these. um, As with every single thing, it seems in this process, the answer is it really depends. Uh, All right. One more question before we go to break. When will the FAFSA tell me what I'm eligible for? (laughs) That's a good question.
5: And it yes. turns out the FAFSA doesn't really tell you much. Um, so what happens is when you complete the FAFSA, you're actually submitting it to a central processor who is the government, and then they send it to the schools. Now, now when you submit the FAFSA, once you've pushed submit, and once you get a confirmation page, and it does tell you your expected family contribution, it tells you, um, your your tentative federal aid eligibility, which for most middle-income families is just a $5,500 federal student loan. Um, And for low-income families, it might tell you that you qualify for a federal Pell Grant. Um, But the colleges are actually who is gonna tell you what you're eligible for. So they'll send a financial aid notification um, after they've received your FAFSA and reviewed the information. um, And it will be after your student is accepted The college will send you some kind of a notification summarizing what their costs are and the different kinds of financial aid that you're eligible for. And keep in mind, the colleges are following a whole set of federal regulations when they do this. So they're going to consider you for federal financial aid. They're going to consider you for state financial aid. um, And they're going to consider you for their institutional aid as well. So the FAFSA is not going to tell you much, um, but the colleges themselves will. And it'll be sometime after your student is accepted.
1: All right, great. So with that, we're gonna go to break. When we come back, we're gonna be answering more of your questions, so do not go away.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook dot com forward slash voice America.
4: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: You are listening to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to one 472 That's one 866 472 Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: All right, we're back. We've been answering listener questions, and uh, Kathy Ruby and I have, that is. And we're going to jump right back into it. Kathy, you have an admissions question for me. All right, James
5: is asking Is it really better to apply ED or EA, so early decision or early action? And what about shooting for ED2 options versus waiting to see if you get in from a deferral from an ED1 option? Wow, that's a complicated question.
1: Yeah, it's a big question. All right, let's tackle the first part of it, which is the question of, is it really better to apply early decision or early action? And I would add, how important is that? Because we also have a lot of families right now stressing about a student maybe just got started on applications and is... You know, it's October, we're at the near the end of October, the deadline is November 1, and they're hoping to finalize a good application in a week because it's so important to be in that early round. So it certainly can be an advantage to apply via early action or early decision. Early decision, which is binding, which means you're committing to attend that institution if they accept you, um, typically does offer an advantage. Uh, what it does is it takes a school where you would be competitive in regular decision, and it kind of makes you a little more competitive because you are already you're committing to that school. So they know if they admit you, you're coming, right? It doesn't take a student who is not going to be competitive in regular and suddenly make them competitive. So it isn't a case where. You're a B student applying to a school that expects all A's, but because you do ED, suddenly you are equivalent to an all A student. Doesn't work that way. Um, But it does offer, it can offer an advantage. Early action um, tends to offer less of an advantage simply because early action is non-binding. You get in, you still get to apply to lots of other schools, you still get to compare acceptances, potentially uh, financial aid packages or merit award packages, and you don't have to commit to anything. Um, What can be beneficial about early action, particularly at large state institutions um, that have early action or priority deadlines is that the volume of applications is so great that um, they may be able to focus a little bit more on your application if you're in that early round. So Mm. there, there are some, some benefits to that. There are some schools at which they are very clear that it is not really for everyone to apply in early action. Um, Boston college, Notre Dame, Uh, Some of those Jesuit schools with early action come to mind where they reserve early action strictly for the academic superstars in their pool. And the bulk of their students are accepted in regular. And so even though it feels like you're telling them, oh, you're really special to me because I'm in your early round, um, they're saying to you, we are really only looking for our superstars. And so if you're not that, um, we're going to defer you into regular anyway, and you're not going to get bonus points because you were in in the early round. So as with much about this process, it really does depend. Um, the other question is, what do you do? So you apply somewhere early decision. It's your top choice. And in December, when they give you an answer, the answer is neither. Yay, we can't wait to have you here. We're accepting you or thanks for playing. But No. Um, instead, it is a, hey, we need a little bit more time to make a decision, so we're going to defer your application to regular. Um, I can tell you that if the application is deferred, it, it also depends on the school. There are schools where they're going to they're defer a huge percentage. Almost everyone who applies an early decision is going to get deferred to regular. Um, and then there are schools where very few students in that early round get deferred. And so mm-hmm. if you are deferred, You, you very well have a really solid shot. And then there are schools that kind of do, you know, they accept a certain percentage, they defer a certain percentage, and they deny a certain percentage. And then there are schools where they either accept or deny, and there is no deferral, right? So it makes your head spin a little bit. It's tough. I really, when I have a student with two schools that that they really love and both schools have early decision and one has ED2, um, what I do recommend is why don't you take your shot at the school with early decision, the one that you love the most. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't get in, if you're deferred or you're denied, then you could take a shot at your second choice if they have it in early decision two. Um, Then what happens? Well, the number one top choice school defers them. And now they are hung up on the idea well, I still have a chance. And so they're not willing to give up that chance by committing to the second choice school in early decision two. Hey, you know, that's really, if if your gut says, I really still want to take my best shot at this school because it's my top choice, then by all means, strategically, I would say they had an opportunity to take you. They didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't stand out enough in the first round of early decision it's very possible that you're not going to stand out enough in the second round, um, the regular decision round. And therefore if you're really just thinking strategically, I would not wait to hear from them. And I would apply early decision two to that second choice school. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like I say, uh, more often than not, the reaction from the student and the parents is, well, we still have a shot and therefore we want to, we're going to stick with this top choice. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, when I was at Penn, we basically, the students who were deferred had the same shot, essentially, as regular decision students did. They weren't in any way, shape, or form in, um, you know, there wasn't a negative associated with having been a deferred student, but it didn't, all the benefit was gone. So, you were basically just another kid in the regular decision pool. So... You know, I can't really answer the question about, um, you know, should you wait to see if you get in? Um, I I can strictly say that on some level, you're going to go with your gut. And on another level, maybe you're a more strategic person than that. And in which case, then go for that early decision, too. Strategically, that is always the better choice. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. That st- strategy and, and what you feel are often too right, very are often different. they're often very different.
2: Yes, this is exactly, not always a completely exactly.
1: rational process. <laughs> yep. Um, if it was rational, then no one would be applying to Ivys because rationally you'd realize I have almost no shot, so why would I even try? I'm going to take the exactly. one that is much more logical. Uh, all right, Victoria writes, my son said that we need to wait until he applies for admission to apply for financial aid. Is this true?
5: No, it's not true. So first we have to commend her son for actually paying attention or trying to trying to learn something about applying for financial aid. So I'm glad he's involved. <laughs> but um, you should not wait until he applies for admission, or you don't have to. Um, what supersedes all is whatever the college's uh, deadline is for you to apply for financial aid. And quite honestly, most of the time, it's going to be something similar to or even later than the admission application. Um, So in practical terms, you might actually wait until he's applied for admission. But I would still say Uh, he's wrong because you should be filling out the forms in October is probably the best time to fill them out. There are a few states out there who have a first come first serve um, uh, rule for their state aid. Um, So it's always best to apply as early as you can for financial aid. And the way this works, when you complete the FAFSA or the CSS profile, you It's centralized. You list all the schools you want to receive the information. They get the information. Um, And then the financial aid office waits until they hear from the admission office that this student is likely to be admitted before they even access the information. But you want it there ahead of time so that it's there when they need it and they can get you an award as quickly as possible. So no, you do not need to wait until he applies for admission. You need to adhere to the school's deadlines and then apply as early as possible.
1: All right. Sounds good.
5: All right. Let's see your next question. Um, Do larger universities really read and consider the essays and the
1: recommendations? Uh, So the short answer here is if they ask for it, then yes, they're reading it. You might find that at some of the larger schools, for example, they're only asking for one letter of recommendation from the guidance counselor, and they're not asking for teacher recommendations, or um, in some cases, the essay is optional. If the essay is optional, what that usually says to me, at a larger institution anyway, that... The likelihood that it's being read in general is pretty small, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's never, if you've got an essay written, I I don't know why you wouldn't send it, Um, Mm -hmm. and I do think that it can be a difference maker when a student is borderline. Um, So the longer answer is that at some of those big institutions, usually big state institutions, that they may be asking for an essay. They may not be read for students who are easy admits based on their numbers, right? Their test Mm -hmm. scores, their grades, their grades. Yeah. Exactly. That, you know, that's a pretty easy. They're just going to put them through, um, and unless there's a major red flag in the file, uh, some type of a disciplinary action, or something that has them concerned, uh, they're they're feeling confident that hey, that's a kid we're taking, and this this essay isn't going to tell us any more that we need to take them. We already know we want them, right? Mm-hmm. But for a kid who is going to be borderline, where you know maybe they're admissible, maybe they're not. That essay could become incredibly important because it is an opportunity for the student's voice to be heard and if the essay is strong or at least very solid, it uh, might make them feel better about admitting a borderline candidate, or it might <clears> even be some a reason to admit, "Oh, I love this kid! Look at this great essay so um so in that situation, maybe the essay isn't being read for many students, but it could very well be uh, read for the student that you know is asking this question or the parent you know, his child who's asking this question. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that in general, if you are, if they're asking for it, Uh, That is a good indication that it plays a role in their process. Many applications allow um, colleges to opt out of asking. I mean, the Common App, you can be a Common App school and you can say we have no essay requirements. Essay is not required. It's not part of our process. If they say that, believe them, right? Mm -hmm. And then if they have their own application and an essay isn't required, then obviously they're not reading any essays. (laughs) Um, But if they ask for it, I think you can, you should assume that there is a very good chance that it's going to get read and it needs to have the same care and attention as any other essay would. Mm -hmm. All right. Good. All right. So, um, Daniel is asking, how much can my child borrow in student loans?
5: Okay. So, um, I guess I would clarify this question. Uh, first, we're going to say how much your child can borrow in student loans in their own name. Um, and that limit is essentially 27000 over four years. And that's from the Federal Direct Student Loan Program. It used to be called the Federal Stafford Loan Program. And some, some colleges and even the government still call it the Stafford Loan. Um, <clears throat> so a traditional dependent undergraduate student can borrow 5500 in their first year, 6500 in the second year and then 7,500 each year the junior and senior year. So that adds up to 27,000. If the student takes five years to finish their undergraduate degree, then – then they can borrow another $4,000, but essentially they're limited to 31000 for their bachelor's degree as, a, as an undergraduate student. Um, once you get to graduate school, uh, then the limits on the federal loans open up and a graduate student can borrow as much as they need in their own name. Um, so beyond the federal student loans, there are private loans out there. There are some states that have student loans um, and private loans are offered by lenders, a variety of lenders um, that you've probably heard of. But any private or state loan that exists uh, that your student can borrow will need a creditworthy cosigner. So while it's still a student loan, whoever cosigns the loan is equally responsible. And the limits on those are essentially go up to what the cost of the college is, less other financial aid that the student's receiving.
1: Got it. Okay. Uh, And, of course, the caveat being, please, please don't borrow too much money that you wind up (laughs) in a giant hole before you graduate. All right. I think we have time for one more quick question on the admission side. All right. Brianna asks, what do I do with such a small
5: space for descriptions on the Common App for Activities?
1: Ah, yes. The common app. Um, I think this is a broader issue around, I want to write so much. I want to tell them everything Mm
4: -hmm. and
1: they're not letting me, how can I work around that? And the answer is you're not meant to work around that. They want you to stay within certain limits. Um, admittedly, the space on the Common App for describing what you do is small. I think a couple of key points. Don't use that space to focus on your role in that activity. You don't need to tell us what lacrosse is. We know. You don't need to tell us what the school newspaper is. We don't need to know the name of the school newspaper. It's enough to say that you were editor-in-chief of the school newspaper or the section editor of the school newspaper or that you wrote for the school newspaper and, you know, what you wrote about. And and that's what They're getting at there. So, focus on the right information, and I think you'll find that there's usually enough space for you to describe it. If there's something you do that really requires additional explanation, it's something that is uncommon that they're not going to be familiar with, then um, what you could do is include in the additional information section just a little short, and I mean short, like two-sentence, three-sentence write-up of your role in that activity that provides a little bit more color. Um, But in general, what you have, that space you have there in the Common App is usually going to be enough for you to give them the information that they need to understand your involvement outside of the classroom. All right. Very quickly. Thank you so much, Kathy. I appreciate you being here today. Um, And thank you to Christine, who joined us a little bit earlier. Next week, Sally is hosting. Um, We're talking about standing out. We're talking about major selection next week. Uh, In office hours, we're going to be covering supplemental essays of some of the different colleges out there, how to approach them. And we're also going to be talking about how to fill out the CSS profile. If you have questions, we answer them. You just heard us. Uh, (laughs) Send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.